0: following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Thanks, Eric. Great to be back with you guys. Once there is a very young, up-and-coming preacher getting invitations to some of the most powerful pulpits and churches in the United States. And he was quite full of himself because of all the notoriety that he was getting. One particular church, he was invited to speak. He was in the green room with his entourage, giving them instructions of what to do. And finally, it came very close to the to the time when he was supposed to step out on stage and begin to speak. So he walked onto the stage with the pastor, and without any invitation, he just boldly, brashly walked up to the curtain, to peek through it, to kind of take in the crowd that was gathering to hear him speak. And he was totally shocked when he looked out and he saw that there was hardly anyone there. So he just kind of lost his temper and he turned around and sort of snarled at the pastor and said, didn't you tell him that I was coming? And the pastor was very wise and had been there many years in ministry. And he said, no, he said, I'm sorry, we were so busy. We didn't get a chance to tell uh, too many people. And he peeked through the curtain and he saw the very sparse attendance, and he turned back to the young man, he says, we didn't didn't say much, but it looks like uh, the information leaked out anyway. So it's one of those kinds of times where wisdom can uh, lead the way, but of course, many times people have the assumption that if you have a following, that sort of reinforces the idea that you have accomplished something. When we consider the possibilities that maybe one of the best definitions of leadership is to and see if you have anybody following, and that will define your leadership. And in many ways, when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, uh, he was certainly doing that. Whenever there is a phenomenon, it attracts people. And whenever there is something sustained in the phenomenon, the people are no longer just attracted to what captures their attention, but then they start to identify with each other. So first, there is the general attraction to whatever the phenomenon is. And if it's sustained... Then there is an identity with that group of people. So these are the Duke fans here identifying with themselves as they follow very faithfully the team that they are very excited with. And so that's where we get the name fan because they are normally fanatics about something, and we use a shortened form of that, form of that to become a fan. So this guy is a hockey fan, and you can sort of tell by his, his address and his description of his, his preparation for the great game. So we can identify with a phenomenon, and the longer that phenomenon is sustained, the more we can identify with each other. So we are very convinced that this whole idea of great leadership or impact or influence necessitates the end result that there is a following. So when we look at the life of Jesus Christ and he develops a following, it is an amazing observation for all of us as men who want to live a life of influence or a life of impact that's going to make a difference for all eternity. And here's a passage of scripture that we're going to be studying today to analyze this whole business of what leadership is about. It comes from Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the names Moanadjuraths, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is a wonderful passage of scripture, and it seems like it's a little bit disjointed, almost as if Mark is giving to us a survey of what's happening, but we would be mistaken if we made that assumption, thinking this was purely transitional, it very much is transitional, But at the same time, the transition highlights some very special features to the point where I'm suggesting to you that I'm really excited about this lesson because if there's anything that could change the city of Houston, it is wrapped up in this passage and this lesson today. And I think it's overlooked. It's not unusual for people to talk about it. But the tactical features that are presented here that Jesus Christ ultimately asks us to follow, and he gives us a charge and a commission to do the very thing that he's demonstrating. It is one of those kinds of features that I think in the scriptures that it's easy to overlook because it's so simple. So if you have the strategists who try to figure out the overall plan and the objective, and then the tacticians who make that strategy come into actual fruition, this becomes part of the tactical plan of making all of the elements fall in place so that we could have the kind of impact and the kind of success spiritually and eternally eternally that Jesus Christ has charged us with. But to understand that a little bit better, I'd I'd like to just give you a little bit of a perspective of what I think the life of Jesus Christ is like. If we're to see what Jesus Christ is trying to do, he's not trying to get people to realize that he's the Son of God or the Messiah and call them to a point of, immediate response. He's not trying to do that. It, it happens. It's almost secondary. It's on the side. Eventually, ultimately, that's what he desires, but he wants to go through a very slow progression, very systematic progression in order to do this for the benefit, not of each individual who responds to Jesus, but he wants very much for the nation of Israel as a whole to respond to him as the promised Messiah. So he's holding off some of the the, the huge popular surge to recognize who he is for the purpose of allowing the Pharisees, the leadership of the nation of Israel, to recognize his identity first. And if you could just trace through the life of Christ from a standpoint of a chronological development, you could see how he's taking his time, very systematic. He's not in a hurry. He knows what he's trying to do. And he gives people easy steps to take with regard to how they're believing in him. Obviously, when when he does a miracle and and does something from the very molecular level to convince people that he can provide for all their needs and even some of their desires, people's attention is captured. Who would argue against that? And he goes from the standpoint then of taking a life that has been spending its entire life dedicated to religious things, and that life is converted, is completely changed, turns around completely. John the Baptist is an amazing testimony to Jesus Christ. Everyone loves this man. They know that he's different. And yet he speaks about a message that is powerfully attracted. So people are listening. People are starting to pick up. Everyone says, have you heard about? You got to come. We got to go. We got to see. Jesus goes through uh, the Samaria and he crosses ethnic lines. He does something that nobody else could do with regard to the diversity and all the prejudice that exists in his day and age. Instead of shunning it, instead of drawing lines, he embraces them. And the powerful message that Jesus Christ brings supersedes even racial distinctions. Very powerful. Even the Galileans welcome him. Those who looked down upon from the standpoint of a lower class people who are constantly working with their hands, have no dignity, have no sense of sophistication. That kind of group of people embrace Jesus Christ. His popularity grows. An official son is sick. Jesus Christ heals over distance. He doesn't have to be there. He can just declare the word, and suddenly people are realizing the power behind this individual called Jesus. It is worth getting close to him to figure out moral, who in the world he is. Jesus is rejected by Nazareth. Teachers start to spurn Jesus, and you start to realize that now with his rise of popularity comes the greater openness of resistance. So Jesus Christ is going to be doing something in our passage of Scripture today to address that dichotomy. Those who love him and want to follow him and those who are trying to find out more and more things against him. It's not a simple story about Jesus Christ. It's not just something that little children can understand all the way from the depths of what Christ is trying to communicate. For faith, individually, yes, but not from the complications and the depth with regard to who Jesus Christ is and who wants him to to accomplish he calls some of his disciples away from their vocation. Men actually leave the, the, the place where they're actually making an income so that they could have their subsistence supported. They leave all that because Jesus Christ calls them. Pretty phenomenal. He's confronted by the demon possessed. And here's when we come to a climax of the popularity of Jesus Christ. It's no longer just giving people some things that they would love to have. It's no longer just taking care of some of their problems from the standpoint of physical need. It's no longer just the issue of teaching them some things that they've never heard quite put that way before. Now he's entering into the world and showing tremendous dominance. Over a world, that's supernatural. And in that realm, when Jesus Christ actually has dominance, not just can fight them, not just can stand up with them, but he has dominance over the demons, people are becoming a little nervous. And from that particular perspective, we come down here to Peter's healing his uh, mother-in-law, the power over a kind of sickness that no one else can handle, and then the restorative power that Jesus Christ brings. Now, all that precedes where we are going today in our passage of Scripture, and it leads us to a really interesting point because you could feel the tension if you just trace down through this particular list of all the things that are happening with Jesus Christ. There's tension building against him. There's this huge fear because of the world of the supernatural, especially the evil side. Yet a huge love and a passion because of what Christ can dominate. He can control all things. So if we were to think to ourselves, how in the world does Jesus Christ deal with all this? Well, he speaks about this passage of Scripture from a really interesting perspective. And most people will not be able to pick this up. But just in the first verse of our our passage today in verse 7 of chapter 3, the Bible says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd flo- followed from uh, Galilee. Now, in that sentence, if we were to break it down and say, well, what's the simple sentence of what Mark is trying to communicate? The simple sentence would simply be, Jesus withdrew to the lake. That's a simple sentence. Now, if we want to add to that that Jesus Christ is into this besides just himself, we would complicate the sentence by saying, Jesus withdrew to the lake with his disciples. That would be the normal way in which you would think about the sequence of events as they are trying to transpire. But in the the language of the New Testament, where the specificity of the communication inspired by God is going to bump up something that many people will never be able to pick up. And here at Warrior's Heart, I think that it would be great for us to observe that God is doing something in the language by pushing forward a simple prepositional phrase in order to capture the attention of those who are paying attention. And the the simple way he does that is, instead of saying Jesus withdrew to the lake with his disciples, he takes with his disciples a prepositional phrase and he pushes that forward in the sentence. So the grammar emphasizes that so that we capture that and say, wow, hey, the writer is trying to point out that the disciples as a group are now being bumped up to a new level of significance. So that's why the scripture accurately uh, translated here, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Now, the whole point of that particular lesson is that Jesus Christ is now trying to point to the fact that it's no longer about him trying to identify his introduction, qualify himself to be believed as Messiah. That's all true. But he has a tactical plan, not just to come on the scene and make a big splash by himself, but to identify himself as the promised one, the Messiah. But his whole plan, tactically, is going to be transferred through the disciples. And this is one of the first grammatical, theological, biblical evidences that God is saying in his inspired word that he's going to lift up the disciples. This is God's plan. This group of 12. This small group, Jesus Christ, is now going to turn a lot of his attention toward them in order to accomplish the message of Jesus Christ. Now, this is why I believe personally, after committing my life to ministry, committing my life to studying the Bible, committing my life to theology, committing my life to the local church, this is the picture of the best way for us to see Almighty God through the power of his Spirit To make a change in the city of Houston for all eternity. And it comes through all of us. It's not about individuals. It's not about one person saying, I'm going to rise up and I'm going to be the leader. It's not about one individual saying, I've got the gifts, I've got the talent, I will be the spokesperson for the city of Houston. It's not about one. It's about all of us taking on a charge and a great commission that we're going to go out and make disciples. Just as Jesus Christ modeled that for us, just as Jesus Christ demonstrated that in His life on earth, and just as Jesus Christ concluded with the Great Commission, if every one of us here at Warrior's Heart said, "You know, God, in the next two or three years, I want to be able to find out two, find two men that You could lead into my life that I'll pour myself into. I'll teach them how to study the Word. I'll teach them how to understand theology." I'll teach them how to utilize their gifts in and through the local church. And then I want to train them so well that after two or three years of me pouring myself into them, they're going to pick up the dream. They're going to pick up the vision. And tactically, they're going to find two or three guys and do the same thing that I was able and privileged to do through them. Now, gentlemen, that's where the Great Commission is. When Jesus Christ says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, therefore go out and make disciples. That's what he said. It's not about whether we go out and and choose to say, now evangelism is the objective. I have no problem with that. That's true. That's, That's valid. But once someone is born again, you don't just give birth to a child and let them sit there and say, okay, you're born. Good luck. But instead, we take that child and we nurture that child. We love on that child. We teach that child. We protect that child until someday they're going to be responsible enough in the name of Jesus Christ to get married and have a family of their own. That multiplication phenomenon is, is is the way that Christianity ought to demonstrate itself. Now, gentlemen, you don't need somebody else to tell you that, and you don't need someone else haranguing you about that. You don't need someone making you feel guilty about that. Just watch Jesus. Say, if we're going to be mimickers of him, follow him, then that's exactly what we want to do. When we look at the scriptures here, it tells us that Jesus Christ is popular, is absolutely growing, and you see this phenomenon here, uh, people not only from Galilee, which was where he was, that was a local situation, that makes sense. But then also people came to hear Jesus from Judea and uh, Jerusalem. That's from the south. And if you look at the map, that's like 60 miles, the way the crow flies. And it's uh, elongated even further than that if you think about all the windy trails you got to take to go from Jerusalem up to Capernaum in Galilee. And then when you think about the fact that they did not have air travel and they did not have vehicles, they can maybe get in a wagon or ride a horse or a donkey or walk, which most of them probably did. That is a huge area of commitment that someone would make to go and hear someone like that. And then you look at uh, uh, the area of Jordan and Idumea, and that's all on the eastern side of the, the Jordan River, and that's another 40 or 50 miles away from Capernaum, and then Tyre and Sidon, Up there in the north, that's 40 or 50 miles away, up in modern-day Lebanon. So you you draw a 50 or 60-mile radius around Capernaum, and that's where the people were coming from that flocked in to see Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not just about strategy, but he's also about tactics. And you will notice here that the Scripture tells us that he tells the disciples, have a small boat ready. And that small boat is oftentimes like a rowboat that they would tow behind one of the larger fishing boats in order to ferry people back and forth from where they, uh, they anchor the boat out into the water and they get onto the shore of this little boat. Christ told them to have one of those little boats ready so that he could be out on the water away from the people as he spoke to them because they are pressing him, constantly pressing him in relationship to try to get close to what Jesus Christ would have to say. From this point on, you get a great sense that Jesus Christ is not doing this just for the benefit of the masses. When you start to get a sense because of verse 7 and the elevation of where the disciples are and watching this all transpire, Christ is now trying to demonstrate to the disciples, this is what happens when the Spirit of God powerfully brings his truth to the lives of needy people. The disciples are being trained with regard to watching what is happening. Here in this passage of Scripture, then, uh, Jesus Christ is healing many by the, the word he speaks and by the different ways in which he does it. But the unclean spirits who are there, the demons, they all make this declaration out of fear, hoping that if they acknowledge who Jesus Christ is, Christ won't bother them. And he says, these says, demons say accurately the truth, you are the son of God. But Jesus Christ wants nothing to do with them, so he sternly orders them not to make him known. Christ is gracious, Christ is loving, Christ is open. But when it comes to making a distinction, when it comes to, to, to making us discernment, Christ draws a line. You never have to question where he is with regard to what he approves, what he disapproves, what he likes and what he doesn't like. Gentlemen, we can do this for the women in our lives, whether they're friends or family or spouse. We need to be men of distinction because men of conviction make lines of distinction very clear. Here, here is one of them. Let me illustrate that. Before the fall, before there was sin, there were no cats on the earth. <laughs> cats occurred only after the, after the fall. So here, this, this has been one of my favorite uh, illustrations for the longest time. And uh, this is how you, you can do some cleaning around your house, the smart way. So no one likes to clean toilets, but this is a really good way to clean toilets. First of all, step one, put both lids of the toilet up and add one-eighth cup of pet shampoo to the water in the bowl. Pick up the cat and soothe him while you carry him towards the bathroom. In one smooth movement, put put the cat in the toilet and close both lids. You may have to stand on the lid. The cat will self-agitate and make ample suds. Never mind about the noises that come from the toilet. The cat is actually enjoying this. Flush the toilet three or four times. This provides a power wash and rinse. Have someone open the front door of your home. Be sure that there are no people between the bathroom and the front door. Stand behind the toilet as far as you can and quickly lift up both lids. The cat will rocket out of the toilet, streak through the bathroom, and run outside where he will dry himself off. Both the commode and the cat will be sparkling clean. Sign sincerely, the dog. Now That's just a fun way of saying uh, there's a very important feature about spiritual maturity, and that is distinction. There are lines drawn that we will never cross. And gentlemen, we don't have to be nice to everybody. We don't have to be flexible to everybody and everything. There are certain things that we will say by conviction. There is truth, there is falsehood, there is spirituality, and there's evil. There's righteousness and there's wickedness. And I will speak up, stand up. I will not make myself a nutcase, but I will stand up and speak up when it is time for me to express the moral truth of what God says in his word. Christ is doing that with the demons. Yes, what they said is true, but he wants no association with them whatsoever. And he has the power, the authority, and the deep conviction to make a distinction. I will have nothing to do with this testimony. The Scripture tells us that he then goes into this next section. He goes into the hills. He calls those that he wants, and they come. Now, whenever there's an opportunity for us to disciple others, the biggest hesitation I have ever experienced and consistently experienced among men is, Bruce, really, no one's going to want me to disciple them. I, I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know enough about, enough about theology. And I said, well, you know, my grandson's only 16 months old. I bet you know more Bible and theology than he does. And they laugh. And I'm joking. But I'm, I'm simply saying, find somebody, and there are plenty out there who are younger, know a lot less about the Bible, know a lot less about theology than you do. Find them. And when you love on them, and when you demonstrate consistency and righteousness in your life, there will be an appeal that you will never, ever forget because it's not us. It's about what God wants done, God's way. If you are here today and you say, well, you know, I've never been disciples, so I really don't know how to do that. Yeah, I understand that. But it doesn't mean that we are now relieved of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Christ gave us a commission. Go out and make disciples. And gentlemen, if you're here today and you don't have anybody that you're pouring your life into, if you're not trying to influence somebody else for eternity, the city of Houston on the evil side is going to keep on growing. And we keep seeing that. And if, if we haven't seen it lately, and if we don't believe it from what the, what the evil side of the city is still trying to do now more openly, I don't know what, what more it's going to take. We need, as men, not just to get on TV, not just to be shouting loudly, but to keep on finding other men to pour into so that this tremendous growth of people who are dedicated to Jesus Christ explodes. If the city of Houston is exploding like they all say, I mean, since uh, the last time I was with you two weeks ago, 5,000 people have moved to Houston in that period of time and called this place home. How many disciples have we picked up in two weeks? The believers, the followers of Jesus Christ in the city of Houston, are we letting the city get away from us? This is an amazing phenomenon. Jesus Christ shows this example here. He goes off into seclusion, to away from the crowds, but he calls those that he wants to disciple close to him. And the amazing thing is they respond yes. And they come to Jesus Christ. He calls them apostles, for the purpose of spending time with them, sending them out as a representation of him, and then, amazingly enough, he even includes Judas. Now, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the master discipler himself can have a failure, there's no one here who can do it better than Jesus. So if we have someone that we pour ourselves into, and and they they, they end up failing, they end up fouling up, then we say, man, I'm not going to do that again. I had a failure. Well, Jesus had a failure. In fact, this passage of Scripture and the life of Judas is one of the most encouraging things I ever say to parents who have teenagers in their home. Say, you know, Bruce, we we got through two of them and they they finally turned around and they both love us and they both love Jesus, but our third one is just worse than the the other two put together and we, we just seem like we are failures at this. How in the world could God ever use us to do anything? I said, you know how many disciples Jesus Christ had? They said, yeah, 12. How many of those panned out? Well, 11. Jesus Christ had a failure? Wow, did he quit after all that? If Christ can have a failure after him pouring himself into someone, then we have a failure when we pour ourselves into others. Maybe we shouldn't be nearly as discouraged or hard on ourselves as we currently do. That's the whole message of our lesson for today. It's a phenomenal one. Betrayal is an awful, awful feeling. And Jesus Christ felt it. So when we are out there making a decision, God, if if this is really everything, if it all distills down to this one idea, that if I disciple like you want me to, the city of Houston can be eternally impacted simply because of my obedience to you and those young men out there who are waiting for someone to pour into them. That's our lesson. Have a great time in the tabletop. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.